Welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata. I am really excited to be interviewing Dr. Garforth here today. Um, Dr. Garforth is an expert in um, dyslexia and language instructions and uh, phonetic instruction. She has a really interesting backstory, um, specifically how she became uh, a part of this field, and I can't wait to share some of her insights with you today. So without any further ado, um, Dr. Garforth, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth, and I have a PhD in special edu- sorry, educational psychology and special education uh, in learning disabilities, and um, I am an individual with dyslexia. So uh, to get a better understanding about who I am, you kind of need to know about where I'm from. So I am someone who went through the public school system and was having a really, really hard time learning how to read. Um, It was very, very frustrating to see my peers learn how to read, and I just could not understand how to figure it out. Um, I went through the reading recovery program and had no, uh, no change. I still couldn't read, and it was just huge, huge frustrations. Um, then I went to, changed to a different school, and it's the first time my parents were told about a learning disability. And that was when I was in grade three. Um, and... I made a little bit of progress throughout the year, but I still wasn't reading um, in any sense of the word. Uh, then um, I went into intermediate grades, and I started receiving you know, the pull-out time in the Learning Assistance Center, and I wasn't making progress. So my parents uh, were able to uh, provide me with private organ billing hand tutoring, and that's where I started making progress. And because I was making progress, by the time I hit grade five, the school decided to remove all my supports. Um, And so I was in a grade five classroom with nothing to help me. Um, And I hit rock bottom. And at this point, the, the school system had given up on me. They were ready to put me on a modified program. Um, my teacher told me that, or told my parents that I was a waste of their time, of her time, that I'd never graduate, let alone make it to high school. So this put them in a very tricky situation because they're telling, uh, the school's telling my parents they should give up on me and that I'm going to amount to nothing, but they didn't feel the same. They felt that I was smart, intelligent, and that I could still learn. So um, I was still doing the Orton Gillingham tutoring, um, but they learned about a private school that was within um, busing distance to where we lived, and they were able to send me to this great private school that was specifically for children with dyslexia. Our class sizes were 14, and every day, I'll see. Sorry. You said you could edit things. (laughs) So the bus ride to this school was 45 minutes, and this school specialized in education for kids with dyslexia. There were 54 students in the school. Each class had 14 students, and mathematics instruction was broken down into small groups. So it was about three or four students. And every day we had an hour of one-on-one Orton-Gillingham tutoring. 
So this really made a difference because back at the public school, I thought I was stupid and I couldn't learn anything. Um, I couldn't do the math or anything. And then when I went to the school, I actually skipped a grade in math. And it all had to do with how things were being presented for me because I couldn't follow the tables, uh, like the multiplication tables and that sort of thing. But if I was asked to do it and it was written out longhand, I could do it so quickly and accurately. Uh, so this is where I started to gain a little confidence. Um, then uh, that school was only an elementary school, so I was there for grades 6 and 7. And then I went to another school that specialized in learning disabilities and ADHD. So um, these were, it was another school where we had daily one-on-one tutoring with Martin Gillingham. Um, and at these two schools, I got to know the lives of my peers who were also dyslexic and also had failed the public school system. And the, the public school system had failed them. And I was able to be an observer to see how their lives were being affected and what needed to be done for them to be, uh, become literate and um, be able to do mathematics. So it was a great uh, experiment, I guess. <laughs> the school wasn't challenging me enough anymore. So I, I didn't mainstream because I was petrified of the public school system and the negative experience that I had and again I was very fortunate in that my parents had the money to send me to a private school Uh, and I was able to make it through and graduate um, my high school with only having some accommodations for exams uh, where I had extra time on the exam and the use of a computer and a reader and a scribe and I didn't have to do bubble sheets because Bubble Sheets and I do not get along for the Scantron thing. <laughs> I'll fill a solid line of bubbles in and not even realize it. Um, yeah, so I graduated, and then I decided that I wanted to do something different. I um, ooh, actually I should say uh, throughout high school, um, I, you know, I was advocating, and I also started working with families who had children with dyslexia that wanted to get an understanding of what this meant for their child and, you know, how to accept it and advocate for their child and getting the child to see that it's not, it's not that you're stupid. It's just that you learn differently. And I really enjoyed doing this because I knew what it was like for me and I could, you know, get a feeling of what it's like for them. Uh, and I found it really empowering. So, um, when I went off to university, I decided, okay, I'm just going to take a break from this, you know, advocacy thing, um, and focusing on education. And I did a degree in computer science. Um, but I, you know, I learned that I had to advocate for myself at university and it was a smaller university and, uh, the disability resource center asked me to join a committee at the university level, uh, called the special needs advisory Committee, and this is a president's advisory committee for the university on disability access. Uh, and so I played, you know, a, a student role in that, but I was able to be involved in a number of different projects. Um, one with the Alberta Community of Citizens with Disabilities, and then another one with the Ontario Human Rights Commission. And really seeing that 
we need to be better in how we're making things accessible for our students with exceptionalities um, and dyslexia. So uh, when I finished my computer science degree, I realized it's not really what I wanted to do. Um, so I decided to go into education because I loved working with kids. I loved helping them learn how to read and it's something that I really enjoyed and I thought I'd get much more fulfillment out of. So I, um, had to take a couple extra courses because at that point computer science wasn't a teachable subject. Um, so I had to beef up my, my courses. Uh, and then I got into my teacher education program. It was a two-year program. And within this program, I, you know, I, I learned that it, what everything, all the other teachers did, but I started having problems with what they were teaching because a lot of it assumed that children were going to learn how to read or that they were going to come to school knowing, you know, their math concepts. And this was something that, you know, really troubled me because I knew it wasn't the case. And then when I brought it up in class, um, like, oh, no, no, that's what the special education teachers are going to be able to handle. But I thought it was a real injustice to all these teachers because regardless of what grade you're teaching, you're going to have a student with a learning disability in your class unless you're at a private school and they screen them out. Um, the estimates population wise range from one in five to one in 20. And regardless, it's, it's a big number and there are other reasons for students not to be confident readers. Uh, and so that really struck a chord with me. Um, and, uh, at this time, Actually, just before I did the teacher education program, I was in a documentary called Deciphering Dyslexia. And uh, Dr. Linda Siegel was in it. And she knew my mom through um, advocacy work and um, stuff through the International Dyslexia Association. So I started talking to her and working in her lab at the university and through that, I decided that while teaching is an amazing profession, you can reach a lot of students. When I was in my practicum, I realized that, at least as a beginning teacher, I wasn't going to be able to reach the students that I really wanted to reach. And that the curriculum wasn't designed to make sure that it was accessible to every student. Um, so I decided, okay, you know what, I'm just going to finish my education degree and then go further. Uh, so then I did my Master's of Arts in Special Education with the Learning Disability Specialization. And um, I did or ways uh, for or intervention strategies somewhat and also um, assessments so I could assess children uh, for risk for learning disability. And then I, I did this also um, throughout my PhD. Um, and found that we definitely need to make changes. And one of the biggest changes we need to do is um, making changes into the teacher education program because our teachers are not being given the information that they need to understand what learning disabilities are and some of the higher incidence exceptionalities like autism, ADHD, um, even things like depression, like these are things that they're going to be facing in their classroom every year. 
and they don't have a real focus on the instruction. Teachers are not comfortable understanding what a psychoeducational assessment says and how to use that information to inform their instruction. And because of how our academic system works, they're not given access to these journals and professional development once they're done school unless they pay for it. And that's not very good either. Um, So that's kind of brought me to where I am today. I have Garforth Education, which is something that I've created for um, kind of two tracks. So I have an area that focuses on parents and families of individuals with exceptionalities. Um, throughout my experience, I've worked with individuals on the spectrum, ADHD, uh, and some of the lower incidence things. So I don't just focus on dyslexia, even though I have a great understanding of it, because these interventions can work for all students. Um, and I think we're going to be talking about the reading side of things in more detail later, so I'll leave it at that. And then I also have the professional development side of Garforth Education, And with that, I have a blog, and I try and make information accessible to teachers. So they're not having to dive through these thick journals. I mean, there's hundreds of journals out there that they'd have to go into to get this information, and they're not necessarily teacher journals. They're educational psychology journals. They're linguistic journals. They're cognitive neuroscience journals that are not written at a level for teachers to read and take information from, right? They would likely have to go through and figure out what the stats means, understand all the vocabulary and, you know, the imaging with the fMRI, have more of an understanding about neuroscience. And this is the information that they're not going into their teacher education programs with. Um, So what I try and do is I try and focus on how to get teachers from where they're at based on their teacher education program to that next level of understanding what these key concepts are that can really help their teaching and help them reach more students. I, I think we have almost identical mission statements, to be honest. <laughs> um, that, that was such a fascinating story, and there was so much packed into there um, that I almost don't know where to begin in responding to it. I just thought there's a couple little truths there that I thought were so not shocking. I thought the, the, yeah. the first one that stuck out, struck out to me was um, the comment about that you were immediately put into reading recovery and that didn't help. Yes. I think there's a lot of parents of kids who have had that experience and a lot of students who have had that experience. Not to pick on one particular program, but maybe a little bit. Um, then uh, an- another thing that just stuck out to me was, you mm-hmm. know, the reaction of some of your teachers, you know. I, I, it's not something I've shared a lot on my podcast section, but I was diagnosed as um, ADHD when I was a kid, and mm-hmm. I found I had very similar reactions to to my teachers. And well, my, sorry. So something that I didn't mention is that when I got into the private school uh, that I graduated from, the high school English teacher was furious that I was accepted into this school. And, you know, he was very angry that the school let me in because of my dyslexia. And then after my time there, I turned out to be one of his favorite students. Yeah, well, it's so funny because these um, exceptionalities don't necessarily dictate your level of success. For example, no. I, I graduated, you know, university with high 90s in my final year. Um, yeah. You wouldn't expect that of a student who, you know, was diagnosed with um, an exceptionality. That being yeah. said... 
uh, I think there's a ton of confusion about a lot of these labels we're talking about right now, even amongst the education uh, community. And I was wondering if we could go over some of those definitions really quick. Okay, well, first, I don't like calling them labels. Oh, okay. Because they are actually medical diagnosis, okay. right? You need to, like, so that there's this all this perception of parents labeling their child, right? And I think that lessens the significance of the condition. So this is a medically recognized condition that is available in the DSM-5, and their child has to meet certain criteria, or an individual has to meet certain criteria to get this. So if you have something like diabetes, oh, yeah, they have a blood sugar thing, right? Mm. No, you have diabetes. You have type 1 or type 2. And... There's nothing you can do to change that. Well, there are, you know, interventions or whatever. Um, but it's not like you're just label and giving a label to it and writing it off. No, this is a condition, and we know how to help it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's one of my big problems with how our current education system is, is it's not using a medical model uh, to screen for risk and provide prevention so things don't progress. Like if you see someone that's at risk for a heart attack, there's all sorts of uh, resources put in to help them lower that risk and prevent them from having that heart attack. And we could very, very easily do that in our public education system, right? We can identify risk for things like learning disabilities even, you know, the first day of kindergarten and even in preschool, right? And we can, we're not labeling them with anything. We're not diagnosing with anything. We're saying, you know what, these are the skills that these children struggle with. And if we give them the right interventions and the right um, activities to do to work on these core skills that are such strong predictors of their later success, we can catch them up to their peer group before their peer group is reading, mm-hmm. right? And that's when the gap just gets bigger and bigger and you see the Matthew effect. Yeah, I, I would agree with all that. I would, I, I would especially agree with the assertion that we don't treat it like a medical issue. It, either you're in our screening or in our treatment. I think we're, we're very polar opposite to that. Um, but I yeah. do also think that there's a difference between the perception of what these words mean in mm-hmm. the teaching community, in the larger uh, societal community, and then actually in the DSM, you know, mm-hmm. what people think dyslexia means to me is very different from what I read when I read the DSM version of the definition. Yeah. And actually what I've done uh, in my blog, I have, because I, I find this to be a common problem among educators is I've created a post specifically that talks about what the DSM is and what it means. And then I look at, so dyslexia isn't defined as a term in the DSM-5. It hasn't been in since, I believe, the DSM-3. Um, but um, it is mentioned in the diagnosis for a specific learning disability in reading. So I've gone through each of those uh, specific, di- uh, specific learning disability in reading, specific learning disability in writing, specific learning disability in math, and then even looking at attention deficit disorder and dispelling the myth of, you know, the fact that people call it ADD. Well, attention deficit disorder hasn't actually been in the DSM for years. 
there are three types of attention deficit hyperactive disorder. There is uh, ADHD inattentive, uh, ADHD hyperactive, and ADHD combined presentation. And these have different diagnostic criteria and have different interventions that are going to work for them. And it's really important that teachers understand the diagnosis and understand how to get the information from these reports that they get from the medical professionals so that they can use that information to design an intervention for the student. The interventions need to be personalized for that student, and you can't just slap them in any intervention that your school is currently promoting because just because it's an intervention that works for some individuals, if it's not targeting the skills, it's not going to help them. Mm-hmm. So um, just for our audience, so this is something we've gone over before, but you know, right. I've asked the same question to Timothy Shanahan, and I've asked mm-hmm. the same question to Dr. Scanlon. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do you define dyslexia? Do you just use the DSM definition then, or being the specific learning disorder definition, or do you apply a little more to it? Because there does seem to be some um, debate over this specific topic, or misunderstanding might be a better term for it. Yeah, I go with the International Dyslexia Association's definition okay. um, for dyslexia because uh, the thing with dyslexia is it's kind of publicly been used as an umbrella term Yeah, where it includes other disorders like dysgraphia and dyscalculia, um, dyspraxia, like all sorts of other ones. So when I think of dyslexia, I specifically think about the uh, word decoding aspect of things and how that affects other things. But if you're looking at a specific uh, learning disorder in reading, it also includes things about comprehension. And while um, the, the problems will affect comprehension, it doesn't have to do with their ability to access the information. So I don't see dyslexia. Someone with pure dyslexia won't have the issue with the language comprehension side of things. And that's where I think it's important to look at the simple view of reading or Scarborough's reading rope to kind of get more clarity about how this diagnosis fits the child and what it means for your intervention. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. So uh, I'm going to start kind of getting into the, the criticism, your criticism of the modern education system. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to kind of comment on on that topic real quickly within this context. I personally sure. noticed that um, there seems to be a very high focus, at least um, where I have seen it, in that uh, teaching students the meaning and focus on reading comprehension for students who are diagnosed with dyslexia. And the mindset seems to be, well, we can't actually teach these students how to read, so therefore we should just focus on comprehension and we'll use other strategies to bridge, um, like such as um, read and write, to, to have them avoid having to actually do any reading or decoding. Um, personally, that's just something I've noticed. I, I, I'd like to know if you've noticed that as well, and then I'd like to know what are your biggest criticisms of the modern education system. I know that's a big question. <laughs> All right, so I'll start with uh, the intervention side of things. So I definitely noticed that schools are very quick to uh, stop intervention and start using accommodations and adaptations to the program. And I think this is a huge disservice 
for students because you're telling them that they can't. When in actual fact, they can if you teach them right. And the problem that we have is that through the teacher education programs, teachers aren't prepared for the most part. I mean, there are some that are accredited by INSLIC or the International Dyslexia Association that work on um, structured literacy uh, that do, but currently the majority of them don't. So if you get a student that turns up in your class that can't read, you're not sure what to do. Um, But if the student gets the intervention that focuses on the skills that they need to decode the word, then they can be a reader. So if I was a student uh, in the public education system, as I said, the teachers had given up on me by grade five. They just conceded that I wasn't going to read. At that time, the accommodations weren't what they are today. I mean, um, I remember having, like, cassette tapes for my textbooks. And you had to, like, fast-forward, rewind. It was so much effort to try and just hear the material uh, and the books on tape. But where technology is now, it's so much easier to just give them, you know, the audiobooks and Dragon Naturally Speaking and the different technology that's available. But that's a huge blow to the student's confidence and it's it's the easy way out and unfortunately many of the schools that specialize in learning disabilities um are also turning this direction they're saying okay well if you can't read by grade five or grade six we're not going to put the effort into trying to get you to read we'd rather focus your way around but that's not going to help these students when they're having to fill out a paper application or when they go to the movies uh, or go to a restaurant and they're around their friends, like, what are you going to do on a date? Take out your e-reader so you can figure out what's on the menu? Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of hor- a horrifying, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, and the research is very clear that we should be able to, with early identification and intervention, we should be getting 90 to 95% of our students, regardless of economic or language background, to be reading at a better level than we currently are. And that's been shown repeatedly with different um, backgrounds, with different language backgrounds, and it's just focusing on the foundations because reading is not a natural process. Our brains do not have a reading zone. Uh, We haven't had enough time with reading to create uh, a reading zone in our brain. We actually have to connect three different areas of our brain to learn how to read. And everyone on the planet has to do this, right? Regardless of their background, uh, if they have any diagnoses, um, like an individual who has Down syndrome or autism or another cognitive impairment with dyslexia, typically achieving, gifted... All these people have to make these connections in order to be able to read. Yeah, and we just have to help them to do that. Yeah, I've been I've been teaching for uh, almost ten years now, and mm-hmm. I've had two students in that time who I felt uh, did not make significant progress in their reading education without after um, interventions were applied to their 
to their reading um, skills. Um, and I, I feel like there's a, a lot more of it end up missing the cracks in that normally, in the sense that, you know, we often are much more quick to dismiss students' ability to learn how to read. Yeah, and that's that's horrible because, um, you know, there's the reading the school, or sorry, the school to prison pipeline for those kids that can't read. They would much rather be seen as the bad student than the stupid student, yeah. right? And you know, then they're tired of being the bad student or the stupid student, and they drop out, and they don't have the skills to get through everyday life. So, I mean, there's a huge number that turn to crime uh, because they can't support themselves. They can't get a job. They have to make money somehow. And then the ones that turn to drugs or, um, you know, earlier sexual relationships have children as teenagers and then it's just a perpetuating cycle. Mm -hmm. So I think there's so many things that we can do. And I mean, Emily Hanford's newest article really looks at you know, the low literacy levels in prisons and for the, you know, the at-risk populations who have, who are an ethnic minority and what that really means and how if we give them the skills, uh, no one wants to, well, I knew there are a few people, but you don't want to be a career criminal, right? You don't want to end up in prison. That's a last resort. Uh, but the damage that's done as a student that can't read, like I know in my own case. So I have three siblings. I'm the oldest. And, you know, it was hard enough when my brother, who's two years younger than me, could learn how, like knew how to read and was reading to me. And then when my sister, who was four years younger than me, was reading to me, it was horrible. And, like, I'm the big sister. I'm the one that's supposed to be able to read to them and read them books. But I can't. Right, and just think of the damage that that does to an individual, and the relationships within a family, and you know the anxiety and the loneliness that it creates for the parents, because mm-hmm. they're at a loss, and the teachers are then if teachers are telling them, "Oh yeah, well don't worry about it; they don't need to have read. You know, they can do this." Oh well, how are they going to afford that assistive technology when they're outside of school systems? Right? Yeah. I mean, it's really expensive to be dyslexic. Yeah. Well, especially right? when you consider that a lot of parents just end up sending their kids to private schooling or private tutors, and that can be very expensive. Well, and I think it's a horrible disservice to parents to say that you have to choose between your child learning how to read and going on vacation or paying your mortgage, buying a house, living where you want to live. Retirement. Like, retirement, exactly. That, that Those are things that you shouldn't have to do or taking out a second mortgage on your house so you can pay for their schooling um our children are given a uh it's free and appropriate public education but we're not doing that as an education system learning to read is a basic human right according to the um the united nations and we're denying that to so many of our students and you can tell this stuff in preschool i mean even the strong start programs could be doing more to help children and there are things that our doctors, like our general practitioners and our pediatricians can be doing when they see their patients, um, you know, from those early healthy baby, healthy child checkups to help prepare them. I mean, there are so many children with learning disabilities that have issues with phonological awareness, and you can see it when they're speaking as 
you know, toddlers and infants. I mean, I have three children, and all three of them have gone through speech and language because they have had that phonological awareness issue. And because of my background, I've known, okay, well, this isn't a good sign. And because I have dyslexia, they're at a 50% chance risk in getting it because there's a genetic component to it. So I was on the ball. I'm like, all right, let's, let's do this speech and language. And it's meant that they're that much further ahead when they enter school because we've worked on that. And those are, um, at least in British Columbia, those are free services, right, that the, the government is providing to the younger students, or sorry, the younger children to help prepare them for kindergarten. But a lot of the general practitioners and the pediatricians don't know what to be looking for. I mean, a lot of them are still working on old diagnosis, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, don't bother to do any testing before grade three, when that's, you know, one of the worst things of advice that you should be giving parents, because the most effective times for intervention are kindergarten, grade one, and grade two. And before, if you wait until afterwards, the gap between where they are and where their peers are is huge. Mm-hmm. And it's near impossible unless they have that intensive intervention to get them to catch up. But that being said, um, you know, people can learn how to read as adults. I don't know if you're familiar with John Corcoran. Um, He published a book in the 90s, I think, called The Teacher That Couldn't Read. And this is a gentleman who couldn't read. And he became a teacher. Um, And he had all these, you know tricks up his sleeve like he had stolen exam um answers so he could have it done for him you know he had his girlfriend or people on um the football team do his homework for him and he was a jock so he got through and he was teaching high school english and he couldn't read and you know, his wife didn't even know until they had kids like she suspected but she never had it confirmed until they had kids and there was a new storybook and you know he had memorized all the children's books that they had and he you know ad-libbed the story but he knew what was supposed to happen on each page but there was this book that he didn't know and uh, you know his child asked him to read it and his wife's hearing him and he had no idea about the story and the child said well that's not how mommy read it and, you know, it's being confronted. I think he must have been 30s or 40s when this happened. And then he did learn how to read. And it is possible. It just takes a lot of effort. And we shouldn't burden families with this. Mm-hmm. Because it really is. And it breaks up marriages. And it causes huge frictions between parents and children. Um, so we need to make a change. And the easiest way to do that is to do universal screening. I mean, they have it in the U.S. um, through the IDEA Act. And basically, uh, if in kindergarten you take 10 minutes to screen each student, that's going to be less than half a percent of that child's education for kindergarten. And that's going to be the most impactful because, uh, well, for the children that are at risk. But then if you get an idea of where the students are in your class on these essential skills related to reading and you do whole group, small group and targeted instruction for these students you're going to have it at the end of the year so the most of them are caught up 
and then they're not going to develop this significant learning disability. I mean, there's still going to be the kids that fall through the cracks and have a significant form of dyslexia that need very intensive intervention, but it's going to help your ESL kids. It's going to help your kids that have are from a minority language background or um, low SES where they haven't had that same language exposure. So, Wow. Yeah, it's uh, all really interesting points. Um, so before we start actually getting into the interventions that we're going to be talking about and the strategies we can use to help these students, um, you had some in our pre-meeting, you had some really interesting comments about um, your critiques of how teachers are trained. And I was curious if you wanted to just um, uh, expand on that a little bit for our audience. Yes, yeah, for sure. I just wanted to finish one topic before oh, diving my apologies. into the, the, the pre-service training. So I think one of the biggest strengths is also one of the biggest weaknesses for pre-service teachers, and that is that they can come from a very broad background. Um, they can come from various different disciplines, and that's amazing because it gives our students so many different ways to look at things, but it also means they don't come in with the same foundational knowledge. And that's a huge disservice to these pre-service teachers because most of the PEDP programs are a year long. And they kind of have to stay that way to be competitive with the other ones on the market. But that doesn't give the students, or sorry, the pre-service teachers, the background and the information that they need. <coughs> um, a lot of students take uh, you know, an introduction psychology course. And this goes into all the historical psychology, you know, figures. But it doesn't tell them what current research is telling them about how the brain works and how it changes and what you need to do. So the majority of teachers would look at me like I was a weirdo if I said, well, teaching's not a natural process. And they'll be like, well, what do you mean? My kids learn how to read. I have the kids that come into my classroom. They're already reading. And it's them not being given the information that they need to know that it actually isn't a natural process. And we have to connect these three different regions of our brain in order for us to become readers. And that the connection between the first two is what our beginning readers do. And then when we're telling them to use, you know, um, the three queuing system or looking at the pictures and making predictions, what they think fits. We're actually teaching these students not to read better, but to read like poor readers. Right. So, and then in order to be an effective English teacher, you need to know about the language. And a lot of students who come back and uh, come to education with a literacy that or an English background, have their bachelor's in English, but they know all the classics. Yeah. Right, And they know a little bit about grammar, but they know about the classics, which is a great knowledge to have, but you don't know the foundational components of reading. You don't know the simple view of reading. You don't know Scarborough's reading rope. And these are things that you would learn if you had an educational psychology background, possibly. Um, but they're things that you really need to know and understand and in order to be able to teach it. You need to have a huge understanding of the English language, how it's been developed. Um, and then you need a little bit of a linguistic background. 
to know more about phonological awareness and phonemes and phone themes and the morphological side of the language so that you can use these effective reading strategies and teaching strategies within your instruction. You need to understand the basics of math. I mean, yes, it's awesome to know all these cool math games, but you can find that out on Pinterest or Instagram. Like, there's all these resources where you can find what to do with students that are already reading and already learning math. And then that's not what you should be focusing your teacher education program on. You need to be focusing your teacher education program on the how. You know, what are the foundational practices in learning science, right? What are the foundational practices and or the foundations that you need to build for reading? What is the developmental progression of those? What should you be expecting your students to do at what stages in their education? When is it appropriate to introduce different concepts? How should you work on these? I mean, even the research on vocabulary instruction. Um, once our children are in intermediate grades, they're learning between three and 4,000 new words a year. It's insane. But there's no way as a teacher that you could teach them that many explicitly, right? No. So you need to know the best ways that you can do this through your teaching practice. And, I mean, that wasn't in my teacher education program. No. You know... Uh-huh. Oh, sorry. So it's just making sure that teachers have these strong foundations. And then you need to have more focus on what to do with children that don't fit that box, right? And how to be an inclusive teacher and how to get the information that you need to know about these students and looking at how to use their strengths to help their weaknesses and give them the skills. And, I mean, that's going to help with their social-emotional intelligence And I think that there definitely needs to be information about executive functioning in teacher education programs. And again, that's something that we never discussed. And that's something that's going to help your students with the variety of exceptionalities and your typically achieving students because it helps with their organization and their thought process and their ability to do so many other things. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. I don't know about your personal experience, but in my personal experience in teachers college, there they sort of focused on just presenting as many different pedagogical ideas and theories as possible. And then as students, we were sort of expected to evaluate these ideas based off our personal experiences and feelings. But in my in my opinion, I think we should be more focusing on well, what is best practice according to evidence and not focusing on quantity of pedagogy but focusing on quality of pedagogy, but Oh, for sure, and not worrying about the reflections and making the videos of how you can teach things. And, you know, while I think that's a a, a fun way to do things, I don't think it's the most effective for the, you know, the pre-service teacher. I remember everyone in my my program saying, oh, yeah, we didn't know anything going into our practicum, and that's where we learned things. You shouldn't be learning things like teaching on the job. It's a profession. Yeah. Like, um... And that's, you know, one of my criticisms for, you know, medicine or becoming a nurse or a lawyer or an accountant. These professionals have an accreditation process. They even have things like the MCATs or the LSATs that they have to take to prove their knowledge before they get into the program. And I think that would be a great way for teacher education programs to improve is by saying, look, we love that everyone has different backgrounds and are bringing different things 
into the education program. We think that's a strength and we don't want to get rid of it. But here are the foundational concepts that you have to know and you have to understand for us to consider you as a teacher mm -hmm. candidate because there are things that you have to know to work in these situations. Yeah. And I know just as I was finishing my teacher education program, it was working on the, you know, the e-portfolios and living documents. And I really think that having that and helping the student create that, um, or the, sorry, the pre-service teacher create that is a huge asset. And I know like when the courses that I do and the, you know, the five-day challenges that I do with Garforth Education, I, I'm all about creating that and helping teachers understand. Uh, you know, another huge area that teachers aren't prepared for is the IEP meetings. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, teachers don't really understand them when they're going into their teacher education program unless they've actually had one themselves or know someone who's had one and been part of that. And then they're not even sure how to do it. And then there's the confusion of the terms and what it really means for the student. And then the anxieties about how the parent's going to react. And then you have the parents that are labeled that parent that no one wants to work with. And it's just understanding. Like, I really think there was a disservice in the teacher education programs around that whole thing. I think we spent like two lessons, so maybe a total of six hours on IEPs and going through psychoeducational reports. Yeah. And that's something that teachers are going to have to do every year. Yeah, I, I have my specialist in uh, special education, and I, yeah. I still find the whole IEP process very challenging. Um, but, you know, I, I've really enjoyed this first part. We've sort of structured our interview in uh, three parts, and I've really enjoyed this first part. And I've realized now as we come to 45 minutes, which is usually the length of our standard um, episode, um, we are definitely going to release this in three parts to our audience. So if you're listening <laughs> to this good. podcast, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we will see you next week um, with more content. So. All right.